And so then the discourse finishes with these 16 steps, and then it goes on to the four foundations of mindfulness, but it does it in a really sophisticated way. The four foundations of mindfulness are basically vipassana practice. So we still use the first 12 steps to develop samadhi, and then we use that to go into the four foundations of mindfulness. So I'm going to describe this. We don't have quite so much time. It's really its own rich teaching, but I want to show you the whole um, uh, architecture of this one discourse, mindfulness of breathing discourse. So we go, after the prologue, after the 16 steps, we go into the four foundations of mindfulness. If you know the four foundations of mindfulness, they're the body. There's something called vedana, which is the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality of any experience. There's the mind, chitta. And then there's dhammas. And dhammas are those processes that create our suffering or create our freedom. It's sort of the whatever system generates suffering or whatever system generates freedom. Those are dhammas. Those are uh, processes that we want to take interest in. Oops. Okay, yeah. So you take the 16 steps, four for the body, four for mental activities, four for qualities of mind, which was samadhi, but you're really in the realm of the mind when you're trying to understand it, gladden it, experience it, and drive it and um, draw it towards samadhi. And then four for insights. So these are the 16 steps. Then the discourse comes back around and says, okay, now that you know the 16 steps, let's use these for the four foundations of mindfulness. So the first group of four, you've already spent time working on the body. That's how you go into being mindful of the body. You do it with the breath. You do it experiencing the body, calming the body. And then you open up a wise relationship. What does it mean to have a human body? It ages. It has aches and pains. It's a place where we act, where actions come out of. So then all these ways that we become wise around what it means to have a human body, that grows out of the, the first four of the 16 steps. You're already in the body, and then you just go laterally from there to do these Vipassana investigations to open up what does it really mean to have a body versus our conceptions of having a body. Does that make sense? Enough? <laughs> Mental activities come to this uh, second foundation of mindfulness, which is Vedana. As, as important as Vedana is, it's often not taught. And I don't quite understand why it's not taught, but um, you might get Vedana if you go on a long retreat, like a month-long retreat. But Vedana is the Pali word for the aspect of every experience you've ever had, coming through your eye, your nose, your ear, your mouth, your tongue, your body, all experience, one aspect of all experience is whether that experience is experienced as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, or somewhere on that spectrum. So you can ask, okay, what is this sight? What is this smell? What is this body sensation? Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? That's the Vedana quality. So in the stream of experience, many things are going on. The experience is impermanent. You can see that, but you probably haven't tried to look at that. You can look at the Vedana quality of all experience. Many of us haven't done that. But given how much reactivity comes out of the Vedana quality of experience, it really behooves you, I put little hooves on you, to um, 
heighten your sensitivity to the Vedna quality of experience. Because it's pleasant, you'll unconsciously chase it, try to own it, grasp it, be bereft when you lose it. If it's unpleasant, you will reject it, you will fear it, um, you will push it away, you'll be despondent if you can't get rid of it. If it's lasting too long, it unconsciously will uh, bring up fear, resentment, uh, depression. If it's neutral and you're unconscious around it, you ignore it, it doesn't have value, you look for something else. It's hard to sustain intimacy with neutral things. So the Vedana quality is having this huge impact on what you're relating to and how you're relating to it and then how you're actually thinking about your future because most of us are actually doing unconscious Vedana management. Most, and if you look at Buddhist psychology, you could say all of our futurizing is complex Vedana management, trying to get away from the unpleasant, prolong or deepen the pleasure, and somehow like not deal with the neutral, space out on the neutral, because it doesn't show up in the unconscious value system. As, as important as it is and as accessible as it is, it's not like it's happening in another country somewhere and you couldn't access it. It's right in the experience, and it's driving a lot of your drama, but we don't know how to be with unpleasant experiences. We don't even know that that's why we can't be with it. It's, I don't like that sound. Why? I don't know. I just don't like it. Why? I don't like it. I don't like it. Why? It's unpleasant. Oh, it's unpleasant. That's why I don't like it. Well, it seems that's pretty simple. But if you actually knew the reason you're suffering is just because something's unpleasant, not because it's inherently bad, it's just you're experiencing it as unpleasant, then you have choice whether you want to kind of react to it or not. But a lot of us are reacting. And so the way this works here in the sutta is that we're working with Piti and Sukha. Remember, that's that group of four. So uh, this vitality in the body, the sense of well-being, you bring that in, and then you realize, if you get Sukha and if you get the beautiful side of Piti and rising in the body, you realize a lot of your chasings are not necessary. And a lot of the chasings and struggles in life are around Vedana. So by doing Piti and Sukha, it gives you a, a reference point to begin understanding how you're relating to Vedana, because actually your well-being is now being born from the inside, not the outside. And then if you look at mental activity and why they're hard to calm down and why they're so insistent, it's because that's where you're having your hardcore Vedana management. It's bec- it's, we, in, we are addicted to certain ways of thinking because they're pleasant. We're addicted to ways of thinking because they're wrapped around something unpleasant. If you can deal with the unpleasant side of a certain thought, it loses its power because it's just unpleasant. But if you can't deal with it, then you get swept into the drama. So once you learn to work with your mental activities and calm them down, you can then begin to track Vedana just as a direct experience, and then you watch your mental activities get stirred up again, and you calm them down and realize, in order to keep these down, I can't be so obsessive about pleasant experiences, and I can't be so distraught around unpleasant experiences. And there's a type of well-being that I can have, whether my experiences are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. There's still this strange uh, well-being that's in me, but it's not because I've actually got pleasant experiences. It's drawn from uh, mental well-being versus pleasant maidana. 
That's a huge, that's actually the description of enlightenment. Not drawing your well-being from pleasant experiences, but drawing your well-being from having a healthy heart and mind. That healthy heart and mind can sit with the dying of a loved one, which is not pleasant. But you're not distraught because there's actually enough capacity to be with life as it is. And actually the joy of not being separated from someone while they're dying so you can actually love them and console them is more than enough reward to whatever challenge it is to be with someone who's dying. And then the memory that you actually got to be there while they're having their last breath is so beautiful, even though it's connected to an unpleasant experience. So that freedom of heart and mind produces so much well-being, but you, the experience itself still may be an unpleasant one. That's a free heart and mind. It's no longer coupled to Vedana. Unpleasant Vedana, suffering. Pleasant Vedana, happiness. Most people only know the coupled experience. Uncoupling this is uh, the work of actually setting ourselves free. And then step three, when we're working on samadhi, knowing the mind, gladdening the mind, concentrating the mind, understanding the mind that's free of afflictions, understanding the mind that has afflictions, this is a foundation of mindfulness. And we've already built this capacity, breathing with the mind, and then knowing how to work with the mind. So it's not a big stretch. Number, the first foundation of mindfulness and the third foundation of mindfulness are actually already a part of the 16 steps. So, um, but you can, you can expand your awareness in these foundations of mindfulness. And then finally, the last one is called the Dhammas. And the Dhammas are the lawful processes of where our suffering comes from like believing things are permanent, believing there's a self, believing that satisfaction is lasting. Those are dhammas that cause our suffering. Those are processes that cause our suffering. Seeing through those, releasing those, is the process of setting yourself free. So the English word process or system can be translated into this Pali word dhamma, and it's the fourth foundation of mindfulness you want to study within the own stream of your own consciousness where does my suffering actually come from? And where does my happiness, my deepest happiness, actually come from? You want to study those systems of suffering and freedom. Anicca is the gate, uh, uh, impermanence, Anicca is the gateway insight that sort of unravels a lot of confusion. So it's one of the, the dhammas that's important. So in some ways, these 16 steps are then the very fertile ground at which we begin exploring the four foundations of mindfulness. There's a whole other dif- discourse that goes into those in much greater detail, how to really explore them in a, in a wide variety of ways. In this particular discourse, they just list them. They don't go into that level of detail. So you'd have to know both discourses and go back and forth between them at this stage to really uh, round them out. Any questions about this? We're galloping at this point. <laughs> but just even the, just to get some of the, the architecture. So there's back here, there's a question. Wait for the microphone um, so that we can get on the recording and everybody in the room can hear you. Um, I was just interested in the definition of dhammas here as processes as opposed to... Um, I'm used to thinking of it as either, you know, the way things are or yeah. 
teachings. Um, yeah. So. And so, <clears throat> this this is one of those poly words that's. Um, it takes a while to kind of get into what is meant by dhamma because it can be used in, in many different ways. And so, what what the Buddha is interested in. Um, he may have been a good cook, but he wasn't interested in teaching people how to cook. He actually was quite good with an arrow and a sword because he was from the warrior caste, but he didn't teach people how to use a sword or an arrow. Everything he did was to help people know the nature of suffering and the path out of suffering, the path to end suffering. And so the Dhamma, the inter- his teachings, the laws that he wanted to um, convey are just around suffering. So you could say the dhammas of Sir Isaac Newton were gravity, and his his formulas were his teachings about how gravity works. So he described gravity both on the earth and between the planets, and then he went out and showed the mathematical um, laws that, that describe gravity, and that would be New- Newtonian dhammas. It's, he's describing a system and how the system works. What the Buddha is interested in is the system of suffering and the system of freedom. And so his teachings are a part of that system. His teachings are what liberate. So they're part of his Dhamma. Doing the actual work of his teachings, the practices, those are Dhammas because they liberate. Not doing his teachings, doing the opposite of his teachings, operating under confusion, is a Dhamma of suffering. It's a process, Those are the processes that which generate suffering. So... I'm using the word here, um, system or process, um, because it's all those things that generate suffering or all those things that generate liberation. And so from that, you can find his teachings have a role in there, confusion has a role in there, because it either generates suffering or it generates freedom. Also, if you look at these others, body, vedana, and mind, they tend to be right in the present moment. If you took a snapshot, what's happening in the body, a snapshot, what's happening with Vedna, a snapshot, what's happening in the mind. Dhammas tend to be studying something as it plays out over time. So it's, it's a process over time. Because I did this here, I suffered there. Because I did this here, I was free there. And so the other reason why I use the, word, the English word process is you want to know the, the process at which we generate our own suffering or the process at which we untangle our suffering and end up being more free. Is that helpful? Okay. It's one of the words that has a lot of different translations. Um, so you might need to cook with it a little bit um, to see how it could be process or system. Everybody still on their horse? <clears throat> Galloping along? <clears throat> So that we get tied in knots over Vedana is a Dhamma. And if you can actually tolerate your Vedanas as they go from pleasant to unpleasant to neutral, because they're going to, and then learn to actually move towards pleasant Vedana, but not compulsively, move away from unpleasant Vedana, but not compulsively, learn to actually be conscious during neutral Vedana as opposed to spacing out. That's a process that if you cultivate it, grows a sense of freedom and liberation. So the four foundations is actually a dhamma, as are these 16 steps. They're also a dhamma. They're a system of liberation, and they counteract the systems that 
create our suffering. Onward. <laughs> so we have a prologue with 16 steps. And it's really the 16 steps, I think, are where the, the maybe the more practical part uh, of, the di- of the discourse is, but then showing how to use these 16 steps to do the four foundations of mindfulness is, um, is very instructive. Because if you go into the discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness, there's not so many how to do it. They describe it, but not in detail, whereas this actually gives a lot more doable steps. So if you put these two discourses together in this way, um, it, they make a lot more sense than either one of them by themselves. And then we come into the seven factors of awakening. <coughs> now, the four foundations of the mindfulness is worth um, four daylongs to really understand them. <laughs> seven factors of awakening is worth its own day long to really understand what these seven factors of mind are. So in Buddhist psychology, we have all these different mental um, capacities, and some of them lead to suffering. Some of them are merely functional, and some of them actually um, enhance our ability to liberate, enhance our ability to be free. So loving kindness is a mental quality you can cultivate. Uh, Patience is a quality you can cultivate. Generosity is a quality you can cultivate. There are all these beautiful qualities you can cultivate. And there turns out there are seven factors that when you cultivate them, they lead to game-changing insights where you have paradigm shifts, where you're no longer having to work from one paradigm and try to talk yourself out of that paradigm into a free paradigm. Like, oh, I'm bummed that my car has a scratch on it, but I know that it's impermanent. But you're still in this one view. What actually causes the shift? Well, one one of the amazing things about a Buddha is that while he's in these epiphanies, he stops and he actually points, he looks at what, what created this epiphany? What created this game-changing uh, insight? And he actually deduced that there are seven factors that when, they are, when they're all strong and they arise together, that's when we have sort of a, a shuddering and we really see more deeply, more experientially than we have before. And it tends to change uh, our references. You can have many small insights and they generally change you over time. But you can also have a few earthquakes and you don't go back as easily to an old view and you begin living from a new view. So another thing we're doing is we're waiting for these seven factors to ripen in us so that they can actually cause the changes we're trying to cause so that we live more from a liberated point of view than a caught point of view with intellectual understanding. So it's very helpful, right, that he pointed out these seven factors so then you know what to cultivate to... uh, bring about these game-changing epiphanies. How many of you worked with the seven factors of awakening before? Kind of know the list. And for how many of you is it new to even hear seven factors of awakening? Again, it's not talked about so much because um, you tend to need, on the longer retreats, usually there's more room for Dharma talks and it comes up as a list that gets described we have these seven factors of awakening, and this is really the ending of the um, the Anapanasati Sutta, is mentioning these seven factors of awakening. They're also the ending of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness discourse, its sibling uh, discourse. 
the Satipatthana Sutta. So throughout the ending of both of those discourses. These are the seven factors. The first factor is mindfulness. Deepening mindfulness so you have this um, steady stream of intimacy right in the right in the stream of your experience. So you're not confused, you're not baffled, you're not somewhat distracted, but right in it, you're getting very intimate um, and true uh, um, direct experience of what of whatever is happening. So mindfulness of the breath. It's not like yeah, it's you know five percent there, but ninety percent checked out or distracted. You're right in it, and you and whatever is happening for you is very available for your learning, for your understanding. So it's a it's a factor of awakening. And if it's weak, it's hard to have um, really um, game changing insights. Now the next six are either I have them here as red or blue, and they're red if they're warming or if they if they kind of um, heat up the mind. And they're, they're blue if they cool down the mind, and they need to have these in balance. So mindfulness is not enough. You actually have to investigate. And that's the English word, investigation. But if, I, if I'm mindful, but I don't look at the right thing, <coughs> then I'm just mindful, and I'm kind of mindful, I'm present, but I'm not asking the right questions that would lead towards a change of insight. So if I'm not mindful, I could easily um, be uh, operating under the same view and not know it. I could be very mindful, but not mindful of the right things. And so what are the right things? You actually have to kind of keep a little bit of like a slight intellectual map and then go into the stream of experience and begin asking questions about it. So like asking questions about arising and passing. It's been going on since you were born, but not many of us actually in the stream of experience begin like, oh, you're right, there's a lot of arising going on. You're right, there's a lot of passing going on. So that only happens because you're actually investigating. You have to investigate. And if you're not investigating, they say it's like um, you're trying to polish a mirror, but you pick up a tile and you just very patiently keep cleaning it, hoping it's going to reflect something back to you and you're going to learn something from it. For it to be reflective of anything, you have to go in there with some curiosity. And I have students that are not curious, and I've seen what that means over five years. They're not that curious. They like the soothing aspect of practice, but there's not much actual change. They just know how to soothe themselves, which is beautiful that you know how to soothe yourself but they still have all their original views because they're not in their kind of curious, like, how is this working? Why am I actually suffering? What is the nature of that pain in my back? What's going on there? Like, to actually be, have a curious, investigative mind, you want to encourage that. And if your practice doesn't really have a lot of investigation in it, it's good to know that. And then see if you can actually welcome in more, more of this investigation more dharma investigation. You could do too much of it, so you want to kind of um, welcome it uh, gently and slowly, but you want to be investigating while you practice if you want to actually change the underlying paradigm. If you just want to soothe yourself, which is fine, and many of us that's actually very productive just to kind of get ourselves out of the worst habits of our mind, 
There's plenty of beauty in developing samadhi or calm or equanimity, for example. But you haven't really challenged deeply your underlying views and opinions so without investigation. Investigation is most beneficial when there's actually some tranquility. Imagine having um, a microscope and you look into it and someone keeps wiggling it. And it's like things are not still enough to really see. So there's plenty of impermanence, but you can't actually see it because you're not tranquil enough. It's a really weird thing. You actually have to be fairly calm to truly get the sense of how much buzz there's going on. If you're too stirred, you know things are impermanent, but you just get these weird glimpses and it doesn't actually translate into a deep understanding because your mind is, is not calm enough. So you want to be mindful, you want to have tranquility, and then you want to investigate. So these three are important. Mindfulness, tranquility, investigation. Tranquility tends to cool the mind down, and you can cool the mind down so much that you're not investigating. Investigation can really like stir the mind up with a lot of questions and looking at things from a thousand angles, but it gets shallow because you're just you're too busy. So you have to be able to investigate from a calm place. And hopefully you can intuit that. Like if, um, if we went out in nature and I said, I really want you to study um, all the leaves that have fallen, you might get down on the ground and kind of rest yourself and just look at one leaf. And it's that basic calm that allows you to be so intimate, that allows you to really see what's going on. And that's, that's the beautiful blend of investigation, tranquility, and mindfulness. Is that translating? Yeah? Oh, that's great. Any questions? Yeah, up front. Yeah. Uh, mm. So, so while, uh, so so while in a state of samadhi, there does take some intellectualness to investigate. Without losing the, my my concern, of course, is, is it's so pleasurable being in that state that the intellectual investigation will take me out of it. Yeah, and so <clears throat> as samadhi gets strong enough, one of the things it does is it actually makes it very hard to investigate. If you go into absorptions, you actually cannot investigate during an absorption. Absorptions are homogenous experiences. There's no contrast, and while you're in them, the mind doesn't have the capacity to look at things from different angles and ask questions. It just is sort of a homogenous peace, homogenous stability. And that's what an absorption is. And so there, to be able to blend these well is a whole art form to get them robust and then let them play together. So if I really wanted you to study any one of these paintings on the wall, but I said you could only look at it for a quarter second once a day, you're not present enough and whole with your attention enough to get very much out of it. So you need some whole, steady attention, but that actually can support an investigation. Tranquility means that things are calm enough. Samadhi means things are stable enough, and you've got your, you've, you're not distracted. And that can, that can support investigation. But if you drop too much, if any of these get too strong, they tend to um, undermine the others. And it tends to be the warming ones can be in opposition to the cooling ones. 
So you want to know how they actually play together. And once you actually can intuit, giving the whole of my attention in a calm way really supports investigation. Oh, I see. That's how they go together. Or I got so steady with my samadhi, I couldn't be bothered to ask a question. It was just too peaceful. I'm peaceful. I just loved it. Like, I'll ask a question later. I just I can't get enough. Like, I'm in my Calgon moment, and it's taken me away, and I just don't really want to be bothered by impermanence. I'll do that tomorrow. So that's when they're not working together. But usually, we don't grow all seven perfectly. We'll cultivate this, we'll cultivate that, cultivate this. But when we actually welcome them all together, and they do rise together, that's when we have, that's when we have the game-changing insights so you want to welcome them all and see if you can get them to co-arise and support each other if you want to actually be proactive in your insights. The next one is uh, <clears throat> that vitality. The mind becomes agile, it's energized. Investigation can be tiring. So if, you're, if you have this type of um, PT inside, this aliveness, that aliveness keeps your mind kind of fascinated, in awe. The mind's happy, it's energized. So piti, which we developed in step five of the 16 steps, has a body layer. It also has a mental layer. It's that natural caffeinated state. You're going to have more insights. You know that from coffee drinking. Not a lot of insights before coffee, after coffee, a whole (laughs) bunch of insights, too many insights. But it can be too much, right? You can have too much coffee. Your mind becomes too energized. And so you also need concentration. You need that energy to be harnessed so that it doesn't... I, <laughs> I had a student once in a homeless shelter who walked in and he had this huge coffee drink. And I said, wow, what's in that? He said, eight shots of espresso. I said, like, eight? My God, don't drink that. He's like, no, no, I just want to see. It's an experiment. I was like, okay, I, I probably, I'll probably get you past this quicker to let you do it once than try to stop you and have you like, try many times secretly. So let's do it as a study. And he got halfway through, and he just sort of like tweaked and vibrated and couldn't follow anything I was saying. He said, I have to go lay down if you're really sick to my stomach. It's like, yeah, of course. You know, that's what four shots of espresso will do to you, let alone eight. So you, there's the warming part of PT, and there's the kind of the cooling stability of concentration or samadhi. The sixth one I have down here, um, the poly word is virya, and the same Indo-European root as um, virile. And so you want to have a type of courage to walk into places. Usually the insights that are going to change your game take some courage. Otherwise they'd be easy. And so they might be threatening around permanence, threatening around a sense of self, threatening around where you're drawing your security and satisfaction from. So you have to, have, you have to be buoyed up inside with some sense of courage to have a real insight. You have to be sort of boldly out of your comfort zone sometimes to learn something new. You have to be stabilized by a sense of courage. And then equanimity. <clears throat> and equanimity here is non-reactivity when you're looking truth in the face. And we have so many preferences that have us flinch or, or chase after half-truths, partial truths. But to really stabilize yourself in the realm of learning a deep truth, you can't already wish it to go one way or the other. To really learn something, you have to have equanimity. To really understand the nature of dying, you can't see dying as wrong 
because it will color all your interpretations. And so when you actually develop equanimity around the dying process, you can learn something from it. And that allows you to see it more clearly. That that actually builds more equanimity around the dying process, for example. So equanimity is very important for epiphanies and for insights, because if you don't have it, chances are you're already heavily interpreting what you're seeing through your previous opinions. You have to be able to suspend your preferences with equanimity and be balanced to really see the truth of how things work. And these are the seven factors of awakening. Three of them are, the three blue ones are tend to be cooling. The three, um, it's not quite red, is it? Not quite pink. It's a, kind of a blushy red. Salmon. salmon, yeah. The three salmon ones are more energizing. It's a big list. It's a list of seven. Um, you could really just work with uh, tranquility, investigation, and mindfulness. Um, but if you want sort of the ones that um, you say, my life changed on that particular moment, chances are that all seven were up and running. And so these are things to cultivate. If you look at this list and say, boy, I have a lot of investigation. I know nothing about tranquility. Like, okay, one way I think about this is, you know, do you want to drive down a car, on a road with a car with one tire or four tires? Or do you want air in two tires on the right side but not on the left side? You actually want air and good tires all around and the car does really well. So you actually want these to all be ripe and robust and learn how to support each other and not be in opposition. But if it, this list is too big then you really uh, can get a lot just out of um, mindfulness for the intimacy, tranquility to kind of get you calm, and then investigation. And there's a lot, you'll make a lot of headway with these three. But then if you add a delighted mind, you like like practice and there's delight happening, and you you get the full of your attention pointed somewhere and you're not somewhat distracted, even more ripe. And then if you have a sense of courage inside and this equanimity, when you feel those, and you can feel like, yeah, my practice has these, then when you point your mind in the direction of um, impermanence or selflessness or the, the true power of uh, love and compassion, um, it's going to really change your underlying um, paradigm. And that's what we want, because when that paradigm changes, so does the amount that we are confused and the amount of suffering that we generate. These are seven factors of awakening. We are galloping at light speeds (laughs) through a very deep teaching, but I wanted to expose you to it just so you get a sense of this whole discourse and how it works. These seven factors of awakening are not pointed in some other direction. You point them right back towards the body, right back towards Vedana, right back towards impermanence, right back towards understanding the mind. Can you get your mindfulness deeper into fear than you've ever gotten it before so you can see its true nature? Can you get your mind deeper into obsessive um, yearning, deeper than you have before, with courage, with investigation, with, uh, with calm? You take these seven factors of awakening and you let them support your mindful practice that you were doing earlier in the sutta on the four foundations of mindfulness or the 16 steps. So they're to enhance the previous work. They're not to head off in a new direction. So in that way, you're really... Um, just covering the same ground over and over and deeper and deeper until you learn that, la- that second language or you learn a language 
that uh, actually liberates. And you begin to perceive the world through those filters. And that's the discourse. That's the discourse on uh, mindfulness of breathing. And again, if you want to follow up on this um, discourse, these talks will be up on uh, Dharma Seed. So if you want to go back through them, you can, but you won't have the slides. I'm going to put the slides and the talks up on my uh, my website. If you want that, it's www.templesmith.info. And you have to spell temple right. That's the one challenge. It's spelled uh, P-E-L. It's the German spelling. Um, so templesmith.info. I'll eventually have these talks and these slides up there so you can hear a lot of it again. But also, um, these two books walk through the same material and they have a copy of the discourse in it and uh, they're beautifully written to cover the same material. So that said, are there any last questions um, that would help you feel more complete about the day? Yeah. So, um, sorry. Did I hear you say that you should use these teachings um, in companionship with the Sutipatthana or Satipatthana? Or did when, I when you get to the four foundations of mindfulness and you really want to do the four foundations of mindfulness, I would have the Satipatthana Sutta nearby because this discourse, mindfulness of breathing, doesn't go into very much depth about the four foundations of mindfulness. This sutta just shows you how to use the 16 steps to get in there. But the Satipatthana Sutta has a lot more detail of how to really ripen each of the four foundations of mindfulness. So I would I would have them in tandem. And you could use the four foundations of mindfulness discourse when you get to the four foundations of mindfulness section of the um, mindfulness of breathing discourse. And then you'll see when you get into the Satipatthana Sutta that there are... There are pieces of the mindfulness of breathing discourse that would be useful. So they really they really enhance each other, these two discourses. And they're they're the most detailed description of how to use mindfulness and what to use it on in the entire polycanon. I on the non self, you talked about how temples changing all the time. Can you just, um, is there a, a way you've had the felt sense of the non-self, tr- the non-self um, truth? Is there a way you can talk about that? Is it like interdependent? I don't know if you could just yeah. share that. Probably the, the, the first insight that came around non-self was actually from Carol Wilson, who's a great teacher in our tradition. What she learned when she was a nun with Buddha Dasa, who's one of the writers of this book, and he talked about the thickening, the thickening sense of self and the thinning sense of self. And so in the flow of your life, you can feel times, if you ask the question, how congealed is my sense of me? And you'll notice when you're being generous and loving and patient, chances are you don't have a thick sense of self. And that's what's actually allowing you to love people and be dynamic and be joyful when you're laughing with others. (coughs) Then you're like, oh, I like this version of me. I want to congeal this version of me. And you start to congeal around that and you start to feel like it's not as funny anymore. I'm not, 
I'm manipulating the situation. So when it becomes about you and self thickens, I remember one time dancing, I was like dancing, like, oh my God, I'm so free, the intuitive, the music is great, I feel a part of the crowd, this is so great, I'm, I'm one of the best dancers on the floor. <laughs> and nothing was intuitive after that. I was like, I can't, like, nothing is working, and they're better than I am, and like, oh, I'm such a bad dancer. And like, my sense of self really thickened and became like cold molasses, just like, Arr. So you can actually feel when you're really self-obsessed or it's, it's the mimic is to be self-collapsed. I'm not worth anything. I just want to be a shadow in the room. That's not non-self. That's sort of an abandonment of self. When you actually feel healthy and communal and you're taking care of yourself, taking care of others, you're not really going to take abuse from other people, but you don't have to do it by being really defensive. It's like, yeah, this sense of self, it's full, but it's not thick. Like, I, there's a full me here, and I feel expressive, I feel creative, I feel like I have a good voice. Like, there's all these beautiful qualities, but I'm not congealing it for safety. I'm not congealing it because I want to own it. I don't want to preserve this version of me. So if you actually stop in those moments and, and ask, What's, am I having a thick sense of self or a thin sense of self? And the next thing is to watch the gradations between those. And if you can actually track, how do I unthicken myself? And you study it, it's like, oh, I begin to breathe, I talk myself out of it, I stop stoking the fires of my ego, and I relax some, but I avoid the kind of the collapse into worthlessness. And then somebody says something kind to me, I let it in, I say something kind back. Oh, now I'm back in flow, flow feels good. Oh, I had a beautiful idea, I want to you know, create a brownies for someone who's having a birthday, but I've changed the thought. My sense of self is kind of opening. Oh, this is lovely. So then you start tracking the thickening and thinning of self. And that's actually doable. And that's actually much more uh, workable than these kind of more esoteric um, non-self. There has never been a self. There never will be a self. That is ultimately true. But our, fent- our felt sense is sometimes it really feels like there's a thick, lasting temple here. And I, Either I think he's glorious and I will suffer, or I think he's pretty flawed and I'm already suffering. But when I'm not taking him so seriously, but I'm not, I haven't abandoned him, but I'm not really tied up in him either, it's a very validating experience. So when I was a younger Dharma teacher and I had more anxiety, I would thicken, I would try to thicken my good qualities to make sure when I got up on stage I didn't I wasn't blown away by my anxiety. And then you get the collapsed version of me, non-self, but it was all kind of nail-biting and self-effacing and it wasn't so great. It is the most bizarre thing that I public speak because when I was younger, that was always where I would thicken out of a sense of anxiety or hoping for glory. That would disprove all my anxieties. (laughs) But I don't thicken there anymore. It's the most bizarre thing. And so you actually, you want my non-self version up here. Because <laughs> my self version only makes it worse. He's a little too proud of his jokes, or he's a little too anxious what you think of him. And it just, it's just, either way, it diminishes. But the more fluid, um, empty of congealed self, but still embodied with voice and um, capacity, this is a high-functioning non-self version of me. And I, I definitely prefer temple when he's in this place because neither of us suffer as much as when he's trying his 
when, when he gets his grubby paws on the steering wheel, it doesn't always work out. <laughs> so I was like, back off on that control stuff. Yeah, let's take one more question, then we'll uh, we'll close out and sit together. Um, I, I'm very interested in this thick and thin sense of self, and is it? Do you feel it's it's addressed well in this book, the second book up here? Um, I'm not sure if he got to that in this book. Uh-huh. And so what the, what the Anapanasati Sutta, one of the things about it is it's actually like um, it's like a Christmas tree that you can hang a lot of other practices on and it will support a lot of other practices. So there's a lot of way of augmenting the wisdom that's both both the Satipatthana Sutta and the Anapanasati Sutta. They're kind of linear and they go through very core material and it takes some understanding of how to like where these other aspects of the practice come in. So, in the Dhammas section of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, one of the Dhammas is about self and understanding the suffering that comes as we thicken around self. And when we thin self, we reduce our suffering. And when self becomes only fluid, then there's no room for suffering. So then you have to kind of, that's not stated so clearly, but the core material is there and the core teachings around self are in there. But to really flesh it out, you need other discourses. And so the whole Pali canon for me is a fleshing out of these, um, of these discourses where love comes in, where selflessness comes in, where ethics comes in, where generosity comes in. I see where they come in, but this is giving sort of like the, the general architecture of how to start practice and take it all the way through. But there are many beautiful ripenings all the way through. And so the thickening and thinning of self is in the Dhammas section. It's a process by which we get caught, or process by which we get free. And I'm not sure that's so well articulated in either one of these books. It probably is pointed at, but that really beautiful teaching of it, I've only seen that as Carol Wilson has given a beautiful talk about uh, selfing. And Donald Rothberg also does a lot of teachings on the thickening and thinning of self. He's another teacher in our tradition. Thank you all very much for your attention and for your practice and coming here on a Saturday, especially Halloween, because it means that you don't all have to rush home and put on your costumes and <laughs> get your uh, whatever the vegan version of, of uh, candy is in the Bay Area. <laughs> Hey, kids, tofu, what? <laughs> so let's take a moment and uh, sit together. And so with our eyes closed, just to acknowledge we passed through a lot of material today. And it's not going anywhere. It's been around for 2,500 years. And so don't feel like it's a burden to memorize it or work with it. But hopefully the walk away is some faith and orientation to how we practice in our tradition and some encouragement to adopt a few of these practices, adopt a few of these, um, these modes of doing meditation and um, you can always come back to the material and go a little deeper with it. So the appropriate holding right now is to relax. Again, calm mental activity. 
re-enter your body if you've been out of it for a while. And then just as breathing in and breathing out is a fluid process, so is the nature of your being. And so gently steering towards this liquid life, this fluid life that makes room for change, the natural order of things is that we're an ever-changing universe. And it only has temporary stasis, periods where the change appears to have slowed down. It's just an attitude that allows for fluidity, adaptability, and finding security in that fluidity rather than clinging or bracing, contracting. Maybe one last reflection is that I'd like you to reflect upon the amazement and the gratitude of all the previous generations that have come before us that have ventured out to follow these teachings and learn from them and understand them and deliver them to the next generation. We are downstream of so many actual people who put very dedicated time in to keep these teachings alive and accessible And now the really important parts of this tradition have come across into our culture and they're accessible to us. And I would feel some healthy pride that you're oriented to these teachings, that you understand them, that you want to understand them, and you want to practice them so that you can realize their outcome, which is an absence of stress and confusion and feeling very distraught and a greater arising of well-being, clarity, patience, kindness, courage. So many beautiful qualities are born out of your efforts along this path. I know you know that and that's a big part of why you came here today. So it's been a real blessing to spend this day with you and share these teachings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.